Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at the momentous events unfolding in the US, from the storming of the Capitol building to the Democratic victory in the Senate runoff elections. We also discuss what the UK's latest lockdown means for the local economy and what the recent surge in Bitcoin's price means for investors. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation and Luke Pierce, Investment Strategist. Hello, welcome to the first edition of Word on the Street of 2021. And of course, we've just been through the festive season. I hope that all of you, our listeners, have been able to enjoy some time with whoever you were able to spend it with and to wish you a happy and healthy new year. But of course, we're starting the new year with with a number of new events. We have, uh, and we're currently in another lockdown in the UK, but most notably overnight, uh, our time. So in the daytime, US time Wednesday, we had a tumultuous day on, on Capitol Hill. So to help guide you and me through this uncertainty. I've got John Paul Yeagers, our Head of Asset Allocation, and Luke Pierce, Investment Strategist, to help sift through this and and find out what it actually means. So Happy New Year to you both, first and foremost. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So as I mentioned, Wednesday, uh, we saw huge amounts of footage on whatever news channel you were on or or following it on Twitter or, or such like. But footage of, of crowds storming Congress. JP, what, what do we make of that? Uh, in, in, indeed, it was a day with footage on television and screens that will likely leave an emotional imprint on, on many. I've seen even some commentators refer to it as emotional, as the impact uh, like 9-11. Right. And, and in some sense, it, it's, it's momentous. It's momentous to see this happening in a democracy like the US, where peaceful handovers has had a long tradition. Uh, following the tumultuous day in the early morning hours of January the 7th, as expected, Congress certified Biden's win following unsuccessful objections by some Republican legislators. And President Trump issued a statement after the certification that there will be an orderly transition on January the 20th. Well, we also know that in two weeks' time, uh, when Biden takes over, and given the recent election outcome, this comes with more flexibility for the Democrats. Those financial markets remained actually relatively calm under yesterday's developments, which were indeed uh, yeah, momentous. And just when we were expecting a week without too much in the way of politics, you know, we obviously had the Georgia runoff elections and, and we were expecting that to, to garner some attention. But, but Luke, can you just explain to our listeners, you know, what was that all about? What was happening and, and why was it gathering quite so much attention worldwide, not just in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, sure. So it, it's probably worth starting with a, a bit of background to this first. So back in November last year, when the US elections uh, took place, uh, which admittedly seems like a lifetime ago, um, no, no candidate in either of Georgia's Senate races won a majority of the vote. And that triggered a runoff for both seats, um, which essentially just means the top two candidates in each race were facing off just against each other. And these races were important because control of the Senate hinged on them. So the Democrats needed to win both seats in order to ensure a 50-50 split in the Senate, which would then mean Vice President Kamala Harris casts the tie-breaking vote on any legislation passed through the Senate. 
Um, we're still awaiting official validation of, of the results, but several US media outlets have now called both races where Democrats have managed to secure both seats, giving them control of the Senate, uh, and therefore actually Congress as a whole, given that they also have a majority in the House of Representatives as well. And what were the expectations going into these elections? You know, was this the expected outcome or, or did this pretty much catch the markets off guard? For the most part, no, this this result or outcome wasn't expected. So in the lead up to the Georgia runoff elections, polling showed that races for both seats were actually very close. Um, but remember that Republicans only needed to win one seat to retain control of the Senate. So the odds were stacked against the Democrats. Um, if you look to betting markets, which aren't perfect, but they do give another angle to kind of gauge what people were expecting prior to the uh, announcement of the results, they had Democrats at around about a 25% chance to win both seats. And it wasn't expected by financial markets either. So if you look to the reaction of US government bond markets in particular, we saw that yields there jumped quite sharply in reaction to the increasing likelihood of the Democrats securing both seats. Uh, and this reaction is really mostly down to the larger government spending that likely awaits ahead uh, under this scenario. So you mentioned government spending there, and that, that's, a, that's the topic I'd like to move on to next. I mean, how, how does that change the expected outlook for fiscal spending in the US? Yeah, it's a good good question and a question that a lot of people are rightly focusing on right now. So as, as I mentioned, this, this outcome does now give Democrats control of Congress. But the reality is that it is one of the slimmest controls of Congress possible. And so you do need all Democrats to be in agreement in whatever legislation that, that you're trying to pass. And obstacles to passing legislation will exist, though, in the Senate where 60 votes are needed to pass most legislation because of the filibuster. So that is where one or more members of Congress essentially debates over a proposed piece of legislation, essentially to delay it or you know, entirely actually prevent a decision from being made on the proposal. Uh, and the filibuster is unlikely to change, um, to be changed, given that some Democrat, Democratic centrists actually oppose changing that rule. Um, so the larger fiscal spending will likely be done where there is much more broad agreement or, or compromise um, and using the budget reconciliation process. So that will allow Democrats to pass certain policy priorities with a tax or spending nexus um, just by simple majority votes, so just where 50 votes are required with, as I mentioned earlier, Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, casting the, the tie-breaking votes. In the short term, this probably means more aid directed to helping the economic fallout of the coronavirus. Uh, but if you look out further over the coming years, we might see more spending on infrastructure. And there are also possible talks of tax hikes as well. That is a slightly more contentious issue uh, and will be debated uh, much more heavily over the coming months and, and years, though. And JP, I mean, turning closer to home, we're currently in another lockdown that was announced uh, a few days ago. And obviously, we're seeing massive step up in, in vaccination efforts. How, how are you thinking about the current impact of both those things on the UK economy? Yes, fortunately, we know that these kind of hard lockdowns do have an impact on the infection rates uh, to, to, to bring the infection rates down. But unfortunately, we also know that these come with, with uh, a big impact for the economy. So these hard lockdowns 
Uh, we see in particular that sectors will bear the brunt like retail, hospitality, leisure. Uh, at the moment, we don't yet know how long it will persist for uh, this time around, uh, but we're all yeah, almost guaranteed to see a drop in economic activity as we have seen in previous times when we had the, those hard lockdowns. At the same time, as was mentioned, vaccines programs are being rolled out at quite a pace at the moment, uh, which is ultimately the key to reopening the economy and allowing people to resume their lives. So I think by the, by the last count, about 1.3 million people in the UK have had their first dose of the vaccine. And the approval of the, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine will help speed these efforts up. Earlier on, we were talking about how the impact of, of increased government spending in the US will likely increase. But we've also had more announcements from the UK government here on, on that front too. What, what's the latest that, that you're hearing, JP? Yes, we will have more news in the UK. So here we've seen the Chancellor Rishi Sunak help to ease some concerns following the further lockdowns in the UK by announcing a further cash injection to support businesses and jobs. Uh, that's an additional support package that includes 4 billion in one-off grants for retail, hospitality and leisure businesses, alongside a further 594 million in discretionary funds for other businesses impacted by this uh, pandemic. Uh, this is alongside the existing support measures in place, uh, where, of course, the furlough scheme is arguably the, the poster child of those, uh, which should help mitigate uh, some of the financial impacts of this pandemic. The spending we're seeing from governments, and this is not just in the UK, it, it, it's an important bridge between now and the mass rollout of these vaccines, uh, which is already well on the way, as we just spoke about, and, and hopefully will provide some semblance of normality around summertime. There are some who might be a little bit concerned over this, the size of the debt uh, accrued, but yeah, as we've spoken about before quite a bit on, on these podcasts, uh, the spending by governments now to prevent as much uh, economic scarring as possible, so in other words, to keep businesses and people afloat, is, is, is money well spent in our opinion and will enable a stronger recovery when we get there. Okay, makes sense. And a bit of a gear change topic wise but before all the financial press as well as as well as the wider press was focused on matters in the US and and prior to that the UK lockdown there was quite a lot out there looking at the recent surge in price of bitcoin and and i know that in in the minds of investors it's top of the list if you will of of something that people are either wondering whether it's gone too far or have they missed out or is it something that they should even consider so Luke, can you can you just share a little for our listeners? You know, how how do you think of things like Bitcoin? Does it does it deserve a place in in client portfolios? Is it something they should be considering? Yeah, I mean, we we saw some pretty remarkable returns in you know, particularly in some corners of financial markets in in 2020. But I think few compare to the sharp rise that we saw in Bitcoin, which I think by by my calculations returned over 200 percent in in 2020. Um, 2020 alone, and it's it's continued to actually rise as we've entered 2021 as well. So it, it's not entirely surprising that you know it's once again garnered a lot of attention from not just investors but but the media also. You know, it's part of the reason we're, we're discussing it here. I think for us, when when we think about Bitcoin or, or really any other asset, actually, when we're thinking about whether to include it as part of client portfolios. We fall back on the same framework that we've used uh, successfully for for a long time now. So, two, two of the most basic questions you, you should really ask yourself first is: you know, first, does the asset in in question have a positive expected return over the long term? 
And secondly, does it act as a diversifier? So does it bring something new to the portfolio that you haven't already got in there? Now, Bitcoin possibly satisfies both criteria, but for us, there are a number of uncertainties around both questions that make us make us uncomfortable, I suppose, right now, including it as, as part of client portfolios. Okay. And can you elaborate a little? I mean, what sort of uncertainties are you thinking about when you say that, Luke? Yeah, sure. So if, if, if we look at the first question, so you know, does, does the asset have a positive expected return uh, over the long term? I think this is maybe one of the first hurdles that, that we're a little bit uncomfortable with here, because to us, there are few, you know, if, if any, really credible ways to try and determine you know, Bitcoin's expected return in, in the long term. Quite often, um, or you are just relying on somebody else to purchase Bitcoin off you at a higher price later on. It's not like, for example, Bitcoin generates profits or, or pays a dividend or, or a coupon. Uh, and so it makes it much more difficult to think about what its return prospects might be. Uh, and so Bitcoin is very, very different to a stock or a bond in, in that sense, um, which you know, for some people is, is actually part of the allure of Bitcoin. But it also makes it extremely susceptible to sharp swings in, in sentiment. So, for example, if, if you go back to, to 2017 during you know, the height of its popularity, perhaps excluding it this time around, but we saw that Bitcoin rose by 1,800%, so 1,800% 1, 1, uh, in a very short space of time. Uh, and that was very quickly followed by a, an 80% collapse in its price. So that's really just a, an example of the, the massive swings in sentiment that, that Bitcoin is prone to. I think the other point that, that I'd make about Bitcoin here, which I kind of alluded to, to just now, is that the price swings in Bitcoin really dwarf even those of assets like emerging market equities or, or high yield or, or junk credit, um, which are really considered to be some of the higher risk assets in, in the asset universe. And so I think that really makes any significant holdings of Bitcoin unfeasible for a lot of investors, uh, You know, perhaps except for those who have a particularly high tolerance for risk, you know, behaviorally, it's very, very difficult to hold onto an investment that, that has the volatility that the Bitcoin does. The, the message from us overall would be, would be a cautionary one. Okay, that's, that's really clear. Well, thank you very much, JP and Luke. Thank you very much to our listeners and subscribers. And we'll look forward to coming back to you next week when hopefully we'll have lots of interesting things to talk to you about, but perhaps a more peaceful and less volatile environment that we can all, I think, do with a bit more peace and quiet, hopefully. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.